verses 5 through 15. As tonight we'll be ending this series on the Lord's Prayer. Let's stand together as the Word of God is read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word read, for your word heard. We thank you what a blessing that is. reading and the hearing of your word. Father, we thank you that due to technology we have now, we all have copies of your word, most of us several copies within our own possession, to read it and to study it as well. Father, bless the reading of your word. But now, grant unction and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to your servant in the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come tonight to the doxology. Now you may have noted that I read it. Actually, I didn't. I have an English Standard Version in front of me. And the doxology is not included in this, but... I quoted it from heart to you in the reading. Um, I think we need to spend just a moment, although I think most of you probably know why it's not in many of the modern translations, but why it is in the King James Version and the New King James Version. Uh, One of the the things that everybody knows is true is that there are literally thousands of, of manuscripts of the New Testament. Um, I mean, thousands of them. The truth of the matter is, the Bible is the most attested ancient book 
many, many times over of any ancient book that's ever existed. And you need to recognize that. The fact that there are variances and the readings between this manuscript and that manuscript shouldn't be something that is concerning to you. Remember, they didn't have word processors. They didn't have computers. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have any of these things. So the manuscripts were meticulously copied letter by letter, word by word, sentence by sentence. And when you look at how the Old Testament was done, they, they copied those letter by letter so meticulously that they knew the center letter. And, and then they counted. And if they came out and the center letter wasn't the right letter, they tore it up and they started all over again to make sure that, they, that they, they got it right. But there are discrepancies in the manuscripts. And there are two traditions um, and two positions about which should be preferred. Um, there are those who advocate for the earlier manuscripts. And I mean much earlier, much older manuscripts, but much fewer manuscripts. And the philosophy behind that is, well, the closer you are in time to the original autographs, the closer you are to what was actually in the original autographs when they were written. Now, I don't know about Pete, but when I was at RTS, that was the prevailing position uh, that I think most all of the professors that I can recall held to at that particular time. The other position... And the other tradition is, no, God has preserved his word more carefully in the majority manuscripts. And there are many, many more of them. But they are hundreds of years later. But that God, in superintending over the preservation of his word, ensured that his word was best preserved in the majority of the manuscripts that we have. And even though when I was in seminary, that was a position that was not held by many, it has, there's been a resurgence of commitment to that particular position and view. Let me tell you this. I'm not going to make the arguments for both views. Both make cogent arguments. I will just confess to agnosticism in this particular issue Sometimes if I'm listening to someone who hosted the Texas Receptus or the Received Text or the Majority Text View, I think we, that makes a lot of sense. And then I talk to somebody else and they hold to the earlier manuscripts. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. Here's the important thing. It doesn't matter in the end. God has seen to it that we have a reliable text in Bible. There is no doctrine of Scripture, not a single doctrine of Scripture, that is compromised in any of the discrepancies that exist between any of the manuscripts. Most of them are a different spelling of a word or a synonym of a word instead of the other word. The big ones are like this one. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever. Not being in the earlier manuscripts, but being in the majority manuscripts. That's a big discrepancy. And that's hardly a discrepancy because the doxology is absolutely true, you say. 
There's nothing that's included or excluded that affects any of the teaching of the Bible whatsoever. But this is the facts. This is what we find. There are thousands of manuscripts. Now, you'll have liberal scholars that will make a lot of hay about this and say you can't trust your Bible because there's so many discrepancies. But they inflate the numbers, quite frankly. Just for a second. Let me talk about this just for a second. They inflate the numbers. For instance, if you have this manuscript, and it spells a word a particular way, and then you have 500 manuscripts that spell it a different way, that's not counted as one discrepancy. It's counted as 500. That's the way they count them, these liberals. That's the way they count them. Why? Because they want to undermine the authority of Scripture and your trust in the Scriptures by saying you can't even be certain that the Bible that you have is what was actually written. You can be more certain of that than you can anything else. In the end, don't worry about these things. Like I said, no doctrine is in any way ever compromised by any of these discrepancies. Most of them are exceedingly minor. And the biggies, like this one, (laughs) that this doxology is either there or it's not, does not affect anything. In fact, the essence of the doxology is found in the body of the prayer itself. So, was the doxology there when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, taught this and when Matthew recorded it? I don't know the answer to that question. Is it, it's possible that, that following Luke, where Luke says, when you pray, say. And there the version of the prayer is even abbreviated from what we see in Matthew's gospel. I think Jesus actually taught this on more than one occasion that people begin to take that seriously in the church and prayed these very words in church, and that either a doxology was added to bring a conclusion of praise to it, or perhaps Jesus had said the doxology, (laughs) and therefore it became part of the oral tradition. But maybe Matthew didn't include it, or maybe he did. The point is, when we get to the dust settles, I'm going to preach it tonight. I'm going to preach the doxology as the word of God. And and, and the truth is, when you read the prayer without it, it seems like it ends pretty abruptly, doesn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then comes back to a statement regarding the forgiving of sinners, those who have sinned against us. And then it ends abruptly. And the doxology, of course, really, really uh, fills it out. But I wanted to explain a little of that to you because you may have a Bible that has it in there. If you've got the King James, you've got it. If you've got the New King James, you've got it in there. If you've got an ESV or an NASB or an NIV, it's not in there. It's probably relegated to a footnote. It's there in a footnote, but not in the body uh, of, of, of the text that you have it. But I'm going to take it out of the footnote. I'm going to preach it tonight. This is the doxology. For thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory forever. Amen. It is a profoundly powerful doxology. The kingdom is yours. The power is yours. The glory 
is yours. What a glorious doxology of praise. God reigns supreme as king. That's why in the pastoral prayer, and I know we missed the psalm singing, sorry about that. I realized it during the reading, but I'm not going to go back to it right now. Well, maybe we'll sing an extra one next time that I'm here. And the pastoral prayer. So I talked about big prayers. It's why I prayed to God regarding elections that are coming up, recognizing that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king. The text that comes to my mind when I think about this is the one that we read for a call to worship, which was a unique call to worship. I typically try to find, in particular, psalms used as a call to worship, which explicitly call the people of God to come and to worship God or to praise God. And there are many psalms that are like that. Psalm 2 is not. But as you get to the end of Psalm 2, what you see is worship and a call to worship, a call to the kings of the earth, a call to the rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. That's a call to worship. I want to spend a little time here with this particular psalm. It's an extraordinary psalm that, uh, that of course, is at the very front end of the Psalter. One of the things that we see in the arrangement of the psalms and the Psalter is that three times in the Psalter there's a coupling or a pairing of psalms that are of note. One being a Torah or a law psalm, and the second one being a messianic psalm. They're right together. Three times, uniquely placed in a Psalter. The first is Psalm 1, a Torah psalm. Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. This is a messianic psalm. Right here at the beginning of the Psalter itself. The other two places, 18, Messianic Psalm, 19, a Torah or a law psalm, right in the middle of book one, and then between the Hallelujah Psalms and the Songs of Ascents, you have 118, which is a Messianic psalm, and 119, which is a Torah or a law psalm. Those are strategically placed. If I ever had an opportunity to come and teach Sunday school, I'm teaching Sunday school in two of our mission works right now, and I'm teaching on the flow and the arrangement of the psalms, and this is one of the things that, that I've pointed out. Dr. Robertson, O. Palmer Robertson, and Dr. Michael Morales that have helped me the most with the psalms, they say Psalms 1 and 2 are the twin pillars. They're the entranceway into the Psalter in its entirety. Uh, yes, to book one, but not just to book one, to the entirety of the Psalter. And Psalm 2, you're starting at the apex when you come to Psalm 2. Listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What this psalm is declaring is Yahweh is king, as is his anointed, his Messiah. But what do the kings of the earth say? We are not going to submit ourselves to the rule of Yahweh. 
We're going to cast off his cohorts. We're going to live and we're going to rule our nations as we see fit. And the psalmist sees this happening. And the psalmist, in seeing this happening, says, Who do they think they are? And what do they think that they're going to accomplish? That they can actually overthrow and dethrone Almighty God himself and his anointed who is at his right hand, the Christ, the Messiah? Look at the position from heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's what God does when he looks down at this. When he sees us wringing our hands and when he sees rulers doing everything that they can the way they are in our our culture today and in the world today, the the Lord in heaven and, and, and seeing them trying to throw off his cords and off his authority, to act as if they are supreme themselves, he laughs in derision at them. Who do they think they are? Every time I see this, I think about an anthill. You know, I mean, they're down there busy, 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 but, but you can come up, they don't even know you're coming, and you can squish it. I think I've used that illustration before here and said, but not with fire ants, you don't want to do it with fire ants. And I thank the Lord where I live, we don't have fire ants. They will eat you alive. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That is the kings of the earth and all the people. God will terrify them in his fury. And this is what will come from his mouth that will strike terror in their hearts. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That should terrify every ruler upon the earth. That he has crowned his king. He has set him on his holy hill. And who is that king? It is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is about the coronation of King Jesus. We continue to read and we can see. I will tell the decree. Now there's a shift in voice. It's a shift now to the son himself. First the father spoke and said, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now it's the son who's been set on the holy hill of Zion who speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what the Father said to the Son after the resurrection and after the ascension. On the other sides of the clouds of glory, when the Son sat down at the right hand of God the Father, this is what God the Father said to God the Son. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. King Jesus reigns. The kingdom is his. Now. Not at some later time. Remember Jesus' message? The kingdom of heaven is is at hand. That's at the heart 
of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his coming, he has inaugurated his kingdom. Yes, he will bring it to consummation at the end of this age. But he reigns now at the right hand of the Father. In the New Testament, this passage is quoted in relation to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do have that interesting language there. Today I have begotten thee. Because in theology we speak of the eternal begottenness of the Son. And we speak rightly of the eternal begottenness of the Son. That the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That the Father is not begotten nor does he proceed. Those are the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead. As we articulate them in theology. And rightly so. But this is not talking about that begottenness. Today I have begotten thee is the crowning of King Jesus as king, which is his rightful place because he's God the Son already, but in light of his work. In in essence, it's like he's doubly the Son. He's eternally the Son of God, but now he gains an inheritance from the Father in light of his work, and that inheritance is the work. When we speak of the Trinity, we speak of the ontological Trinity. You may have heard me say this or heard others say this before. That is, how is God in his being? Three persons, one God, three persons of one substance, equal in power and authority. There's no subordination of one person to another in God as he is. However, God also works. And he works in creation and he works in redemption. And in his work and the work of the three persons of the Godhead, there is the willing submission and subjection of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Father and the Son. It's a willing subjection. It's not who the Son or who the Spirit is ontologically in terms of the being of God, but it's how God has decided to work in creation and in redemption. And the Son submitted himself to the Father in what we call the counsel of peace or the covenant of redemption from all eternity between the three persons of the Godhead, in particular the focus upon the Father and the Son, that in due time the Son would become incarnate and redeem the elect, and that the Spirit would come and apply the work of the Son to the elect. This was the eternal mind of God. We call it the covenant of redemption or the the council of peace. Those who prefer that particular language. And so as God has worked in redemption, the son willingly became incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Was obedient to the father even to death, death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Philippians chapter 2. And God gave him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow 
those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Greek word is kurios there. This is the highest honor the Father could bestow upon the Son is to give him the name kurios, the name Lord. Lord of Lords. And the Father has set him on his holy hill of Zion, not the one here on earth where he set David, who is a type, but the one that is above in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the type of David in heaven. And that's in the ascension and in the session at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 The Father says to him, sit down here until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's the age in which we're living right now. He is reigning and he is ruling. The kingdom belongs to him. Thine is the kingdom. And we need to remember this. There are kings all over the place, or presidents, or prime ministers, whatever they want to call the civil magistrates, wherever they are. And they're appointed by God. They have a purpose by God. That purpose is to protect the righteous and to punish the wicked. That's why God has established them in this this world in which we live. And yet they owe allegiance, all of them, one and all, to King Jesus who is exalted. Look how the psalm ends. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. This this is a warning to kings and presidents and prime ministers and all rulers. O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Because he is your king. And then kiss the son. You've, made, you've heard me refer to this text before. This is not the kiss of affection. It's not two kings who meet on the tarmac at a, in an airport when one's coming and they meet there. They go up and they kiss each other on each other's cheek and that kind of thing, acknowledging, you know, this, that's your sovereignty, this is my sovereignty. As if we are equal, there's some parity between rulers of different nations. Now it's get on your knee and kiss the signet ring of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's total surrender. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is quickly kindled. Or the King James translates it, is kindled just a little bit. You don't, know, you don't even want to see just a little bit of the wrath of this king. Of course, the psalm ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. <laughs> we are to run to this king because he is also our savior. The kingdom is his. The kingdom is yours. 
That's what we pray. We acknowledge his sovereignty. But then the second phrase, the power is yours. What kind of king is it if he doesn't have an army? What kind of king is it if he doesn't have the strength to subdue his subjects? The strength to rule, even if it's benevolent, but to punish evildoers. What if he has no sword? Well, he has no kingdom, does he? Your king is God omnipotent. Your king is God almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is God almighty. He is omnipotent. He doesn't have to call 10,000 angels. He could. He's got them. He's got more than that. He is omnipotent. He has a kingdom and he's able to rule in his kingdom. And he does. And he does in providence. And he does through the proclamation of the gospel. As the gospel is preached and people come in, more and more come into the kingdom and willingly bow the knee to this king with trembling, yes, but with rejoicing. It's the father who says to the son, I've given the world to you. It's the father who says to the son, sit down at my feet until I make all of your enemies your footstool. He has the power. Think of the children of Israel. The Lord had already demonstrated his hand of power in ten plagues. And then the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, was the one that, that caused Pharaoh's knees to finally buckle. And he said, Just leave. Take whatever you want. Just leave. And as they're on their way, they come to a barrier, a sea. How are we going to get across this? There may be three quarters of a million people in this bunch of people here that are going into the wilderness. How are we going to get across this barrier? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He sends his chariots and he sends his soldiers after them. The most mighty army of the ancient world at that time is coming behind them. There's a barrier of a sea in front of them. We're trapped here. We're going to perish here. Moses brought us out here in order to perish right here in front of this sea, the people said in their unbelief. Moses raises that rod, the whole hand of God. I don't know if I've said it here before, but I'm going to be disappointed if Moses' voice doesn't sound like Charlton Heston when I get to have <laughs> He was the best Moses ever. You know, once he was Moses, there could never be a Moses again after him. <laughs> and the waters part. And that's nothing to God. He said, let there be light. There was light like that. He created all of creation in the space of six days. By the word of his power, 
He is almighty. He is omnipotent. He is a king and he has the power to rule. We should be very confident, those of us that are his people, that this is all going to end well. I don't know about in the short term, but in the long term, it's all going to end well. Because our king is going to come in the clouds of glory. And when he does, the wicked kings of the earth and everybody else that's wicked, they're going to flee to caves and they're going to crowd to the rocks to fall on them, to protect them from the wrath of the Lamb as he comes. And we'll be called up to meet him as he comes and we'll be the, his entourage as he makes his descent here to the earth and brings in the consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. He is omnipotent. He is able to reign. And then, thine is the glory. Glory is one of those words that's hard to get your mind around. It's one of those things, you know what it is, but try to define it. At its root, it has a sense of heaviness. Not like in the 60s, you know, wow, that's heavy. Not that way. Sorry about that. A very, very weak word that points that direction today is gravitas. Still, it's a weak word by comparison to glory. His, his being has substance and, and thus weight. It's also associated in Scripture with light. So that when Moses goes into the tent of meeting and meets, as it were, in face-to-faceness, and he comes out. They, they put a covering over his head. Why? Because his, his face is shining with this, the, the light of the glory from being in the presence of God himself. We read in the New Testament, the reason why it was covered is because the glory faded. But in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory doesn't fade. Take the veil off. Of light of weight, of honor. All the honor goes to him. One of the things that I love, Presbyterian meetings coming up, is talking about you guys. Talking about the mission works. Talking about the things that God is doing in the various places. And and I'm not going to get up there and, and say... Man, look at what Chuck has done. You can't believe what Dan did. What would we do without Pete, you know, or or Toby, or Brenda, or <laughs> or Wanda? No, I'm going to get up and say, this is what God's doing. Certainly not. So guess what your regional home missionary's doing? <laughs> God is at work. And he gets the glory. And we like it like that. That's the way we want it to be. He's the all-powerful, glorious king. That's what we sing when we sing that doxology. The kingdom is yours. The glory is yours. The kingdom is yours. The power is yours. The glory is yours.
us. But this is about a prayer. Jesus teaching us how to pray. And I, I prayed earlier in the pastoral prayer about we need to pray big prayers. I mean, if we're praying to this king who is omnipotent, who is all-glorious, are we praying big prayers? When we pray for this work, I'm very thankful that you guys are meeting on Thursday nights. I teach at Grand Bible College on Thursday nights, so I can't attend with you guys when you meet to pray. Prayer is of great significance in a mission work because we, we know it's the Lord who's building and we're laying hold of him. How, how, how powerful are your prayers? How big are your prayers for what God's going to accomplish here? I remember a few years ago, we had two of our mission works, one in Cookville, Tennessee, and one in Gastonia, North Carolina at that time. That had, They just hit plateaus, both of them. After some initial growth, the, the visitors just stopped coming. And, and this went on for a season of time. And, and enough that there was some you know, concern. Because both of them had organizing pastors. We had subsidies from Presbyterian and General Assembly that were helping to pay the salaries of those organizing pastors. And those subsidies were diminishing year after year after year because we anticipate that when we bring in an evangelist, we're going to come with a lot of money to help the mission work to pay for that evangelist. But that God's going to bless the work with growth so that tithes and offerings will take up what is lacking as the subsidies diminish. And so both of those churches, independent of each other, at the same time decided we're going to pray earnestly for the Lord to send people. And I'll never forget, I visited both of them just a few weeks after they began to earnestly pray. And it's not that they set up any new programs or this or that. They kept doing the things that they were doing before. But they began to pray and, and, and I go to visit and there are people there I've never seen before. Both churches. One of them almost doubled in attendance in a six week period of time. The other one had substantial growth. And, and both of the churches are vibrant congregations today that the Lord has blessed. There are plateaus. There are times of difficulty. There are times when we wonder, was Jesus telling the truth? He said the fields are white and the harvest. They seem like pretty barren, dusty ground to me. We need to lay hold of God. God builds his church. So I'm thankful for the prayer meeting that Dan has began. And he does the, the Zoom invitations and everything that, that goes out week for week. I would encourage you to do everything that you can to attend that prayer meeting and to pray boldly before God. That he will establish his word here. We think we need a new program. Well, maybe we do. 
Maybe there are things we're not doing that we should do. But it's the Lord who builds His church. That's why we have to latch on to Him. So as we come to the end of this study of this prayer and the doxology itself, that's what I want to leave with you. Don't be afraid to ask God for things that you think are impossible for Him. No, that are impossible. Because they're not impossible for Him. And if He's the King and He's omnipotent, And he's glorious. He is able to bless his church. And he will. He will. Let's stand together and pray this prayer, including the doxology, together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's turn now in our hymnals to number 57, Hallelujah, Praise.